Well, it's good to see you today. I, as Pat mentioned, I am Drew. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Overlake. However, I'm probably best known for working with Celebrate Recovery. But if you come to CR on any Tuesday night, you'll probably hear me introduce myself something like this. Hi, I'm Drew. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus who's experiencing victory over drug addiction, sexual addiction, and codependency, and I struggle with anger. There's a number of you are CR people here. That's good. But some, adif- some additional information about me is my wife, Robin, and I have been married 38 years this next month. I think that's a testament more of her than me. We also have a son who is seven weeks into boot camp in San Diego to become a United States Marine. Hoorah. I know he'll like that because he'll probably catch the video at some point, so he'll feel affirmed by that. But he's in boot, and because he's in boot, the only exchange of communication we have is through letters. And as we're receiving letters home, we're finding it interesting reading about the transition he's making in his life from someone who's felt very fragmented throughout his youth to one who is starting to understand his core and he's learning to walk with real purpose and intentionality. In many ways, I would suggest that's part of our story as Christ followers, isn't it? We're constantly growing from a state of being fragmented into wholeness, clarity, and purpose. In the book, Life's Healing Choices, written by Pastor John Baker, who founded Celebrate Recovery, he recounts a story of a father on a lazy Sunday afternoon who's trying to take a nap. But his little boy is really bored, so he keeps waking him up. And so he tries to find some kind of a puzzle or something creative to keep his son busy so he can just catch a little more, uh, a few more Zs. And so the dad finds a picture in the newspaper of a rural map, and he cuts out the outline of all the countries. And he gives them to his son, and he says, you know, here, I want you to put together this puzzle. And he, he thinks that, well, his son will be down for about an hour or so, but in 15 minutes, his little guy comes back. He says, Daddy, I got the puzzle back together. And he goes, how did you do that? I mean, how did you do it so quickly? It was easy, the boy replied, since there was a picture of a person on the back. Once I got my person together, the world came back together too. (laughs) So with that being said, question, how put together is your person today? And how is your world looking? You see, for a good number of of us, we're a bit like that puzzle. The pieces of our lives are scattered all over the place, and we're existing in life with no real understanding of how to get our person back together so that our world will be all right. And unfortunately, it's so much easier for most of us to pretend that we have it all together rather than admit the brokenness in our life. But the fact is we all have times in our life where it hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we encounter in our world create fragmentation. You see, it's just not possible to escape brokenness in our lives. Simply put, we're fallen people that live in a fallen world. And as a result, we all have the tremendous capacity to hurt others and be hurt by others. But we also experience temptation, failure, disappointment, grief, resentments, and regret. And why the Bible would tell us that 
there are no righteous ones, not even one, and that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, it's all too easy to pretend that we're immune to struggle. So you see, there really are only two kinds of people. Those who can admit they're broken and they struggle, and those who can't. And friends, the latter are called those who are in denial. In fact, I would tell you the only people Jesus really ever got ticked off with in Scripture were those who didn't think they had any problems or thought they had it all together. And while it's true that each one of us struggles with various hurts, habits, and hang-ups, equally as true, we all have a tendency to avoid dealing with them until our chaos and pain become so great that they can no longer be ignored. I know that was true in my life. It wasn't until I brought my marriage to the brink of destruction and my reputation was completely shot and I found myself hospitalized in a psychiatric ward that I was willing to admit my life was out of control. And while the chaos in my life resulted from codependency, drug use, and sexual misconduct, it can creep up a lot of different ways for everyone. Clearly, it can come in the form of medicating ourselves with drugs or alcohol, but it can also come from an unhealthy attraction to food, where, you know, you're eating more than your body needs, but the pleasure and comfort it brings is just too great to resist. Perhaps you lived with messages that you're not good enough, not valuable or appreciated, and have you allowed yourself to continuously be manipulated or treated poorly by others, hoping that you will eventually find acceptance and love. Or maybe you've experienced abuse in your life and you've lost the ability to trust in your relationships. Or perhaps you're someone who overfunctions or struggles with perfectionism, isolating, excessive control, anger, and rage, excessive spending, or an addiction to shopping or gambling. Friends, the ways we can get stuck are limitless. And why there was a time in the church at large, we all pretended that, you know, people had struggled with these kinds of issues were those people. The church is helping people to realize the call of Jesus is to freedom. And as a result, we're seeing more and more people willing to be honest and acknowledge that we're all those people. And where the church was once viewed as a place where people would be judged for their struggles, today it's seen as a safe haven where people are finding love and acceptance as they're entering into community with others to seek God's power and uh, encourage one another in victory over their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. I think that's incredibly good news. Because you see, I don't think Jesus ever intended for us to get saved so we could simply sit in a church pew and pretend we had it all together. But that we would enter into relationship with him and each other to experience freedom over the things we struggle with. It hasn't always been that way, though, even here at Overlake. I can remember almost 10 years ago when, when, when I first started Celebrate Recovery, I thought, awesome, finally a program where people will find a safe place where they can get real and will enter in a loving community to overcome the things they're struggling with. This is so needed, I thought. People are going to bust down the doors to be a part of it. So when we started, 
I thought for sure on that very first night, there'd be 60 to 100 people in attendance. When that first night came, we only had 14 people, and 10 of them were our leaders. <laughs> now, think about this for a minute. Can you imagine in a church of three to 4,000 people, there were only four people with problems? <laughs> Yet today, we consistently see anywhere between 100 or 200 or even more on any week at Celebrate Recovery. Yeah, come on now. But you know, friends, that's only a fraction of the many who could be taking the risk to come into a safe place to honestly address the issues they're struggling with. I think part of the problem that we face at Celebrate Recovery is that people think CR is just for those who struggle with, with drugs or alcohol. That's not the case at all. It's an honest, loving environment for anyone to work on any area of struggle in their life. For example, I've asked my friend Linda, Linda, why don't you come on up, to come and share a bit of her story with you today. Would you all give Linda a warm welcome? Hi. My name is Linda, a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I'm experiencing victory over anger, control and perfectionism, and struggle with food issues. I was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston and raised in Boston. Mom and dad were very young starting their family, at the same time struggling to keep afloat. During this time, I was a happy child and loved life, but I did not escape the lifelong messages of I'm not good enough and I will never be good enough. These lives shaped my life in such a way that I acted out in anger, control, perfectionism, promiscuity, codependence, and I turned to food for my comfort. By child number six, mom and dad were both heavy drinkers, alcoholics. As God's plan would have it, I eventually moved to Hollywood, California, where I met the love of my life, Jim. We married in January 1989, and we decided to start a whole new life. We found a home in Kirkland, took jobs where we could find them, and tried to start a family. I was 36 years old and finally living a life I always dreamed of, a wonderful husband, a home, beautiful city to live in, good job but there was a hole in my heart. Something was missing. God used a precious friend to witness to me and share his unfailing love. God showed me that I was his daughter, not my mother's daughter. I began my journey of seeking him. I bought my first Bible and began to devour his word. Soon I wanted to find a church, and lo and behold, Jim wanted to come along. We found Overlake Christian Church and knew immediately that this was home. We became members 27 years ago. In 1991, I finally got pregnant. I was very pregnant in February of 1992 when we both decided to get baptized. I just prayed they'd get me back out of the water. <laughs> April 4, 1992, our first baby girl, Angela, was born. I remember it like it was yesterday. Even with all our pre-planning, nothing had prepared us for what we were about to go through. Our sweet Angela was diagnosed with trisomy 18, or Edwards syndrome. She had a third of the 18th chromosome. We all have two. Trisomy 18 meant she, if she were to live through the birth process, Angela would never walk or talk or do anything for herself, and she would not be expected to live beyond one year. After she was born, we were told to take her home where she would likely die. 
We took her home, and for the first days of her life, I prayed every night while walking her that God would change this diagnosis. Somehow, he would show the doctors to be wrong, or by some miracle, any miracle, fix things. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. However, God knew the temperature of the fire we were in, and though he doesn't always remove us from the fire, he promises to give us strength while we're in it. We went about our, lives, about our lives doing the very best we could as new parents of a medically fragile child, trying to make sure we were paddling in the same direction. This meant 24-hour care, paying attention to every sign and every sound, knowing this could be the day our sweet girl would go home to be with the Lord. Eventually, we were blessed with our second child, another precious baby girl, Abigail. Only this time, we like to say she was born with the normal syndrome. We needed to balance the constant care necessary for our medically fragile child, while also providing for all the typical activities of our other daughter, Abigail. Life took on a pace that was beyond circus-like. As a result, we decided I would do childcare out of our home, and I took on two other children full-time. So with every doctor appointment and therapy session for Angela, there was me and my entourage of four. And believe me, there were many appointments for our sweet Angela. Talk about perseverance. This little girl experienced gavage feeding, ear infections, and ear tubes, a broken femur not once but twice with a full body cast each time, feeding tube placement, replacement when needed, hearing testing over and over, eye problems requiring specialist eye drops every hour, ointment three times a day, orthotics to straighten her feet, gloves to separate her fingers, seizures and all that go along with that, a dislocated hip, a dislocated shoulder due to lack of weight bearing and resistance, pressure sores on her little toes. She had PT appointments, OT appointments, speech and communication therapy, aquatic therapy and vision therapy, wheelchair and special equipment fittings, feeding pumps, airflow mattress, oxygen when needed, special chairs for seating, body jackets for scoliosis and kyphosis, medications for seizures, meds to prevent vomiting, others for bowel movements, medication for bone strengthening and digestion, doctor appointments with cardiologist, neurologist, orthopedic surgeon, dietitian, dentist, skin specialist and eye specialist, kidney ultrasounds every six months, blood draws way too often, Everybody poking, prodding, sticking needles. Through it all, she had a twinkle in her eyes and an angelic spirit. We decided I would homeschool Abigail, our child with the normal syndrome. And while Angela was now eligible to be part of the public school system, you don't want me to tell you the hoops I jumped through there, I wanted to be sure Abigail never lacked social activity. So along with schooling, we did gymnastics, swimming lessons every summer, horseback riding lessons, dancing lessons, art lessons, jump rope classes with the hot dogs, 4-H forever, keepers of the faith, a mom and daughter group, book club, figure skating lessons, cake decorating, campfire girls, and homeschooling co-ops. Ultimately, Jim and I were functioning as business partners, just trying to survive one day at a time. We inched along, Jim and I, very sleep-deprived due to Angela's needs during the night, finding ourselves struggling, just struggling. December 2007, Angela was almost 16 years old. Abigail, 14. Even though Angela's health was progressively worsening, we tried to do life as normal as we possibly could. On December 23, 2007, during the Christmas service at Overlake Christian Church, we sat in our usual place, second row, with Angela in her wheelchair right next to me. 
following communion, the soloist began to sing the song, Mary, Did You Know? It was then that I heard sweet Angela take her very last breath. What an amazing moment. The Lord called sweet Angela home to be with him while we were in his house singing praises to his name. Fast forward one month. My heart ached missing my sweet daughter. As I desperately tried to create a new normal, minus the constant activity we're used to, I realized I was filled with anger and stress. I was grieving. One Sunday while at church, Pastor Drew caught my eye and came over to say hello. How are you, he asked. Well, that's all it took. I burst into tears and proceeded to tell him I was so angry I was ready to snap. Do you know what he asked me? Have you ever thought about coming to celebrate recovery? <laughs> I thought celebrate recovery was just for drug and alcohol abuse, I told him. No, he said, why don't you come and check it out? At Celebrate Recovery, I found a community of non-judgmental people who were honest, transparent, and understanding. It was a place where I was able to process my grief and work on issues I struggled with over the course of my lifetime. I began to realize, and do now, that I cannot do it alone. Our journey is a process. I praise God for loving me so much that he did not leave me in the pit of brokenness. At Celebrate Recovery, we have a saying, get, bitter or, get better or get bitter. My life has never been so rich. I've learned that God can use me in all of my weakness and brokenness. I'm currently the female training coach for Celebrate Recovery. I facilitate a woman's open share group at CR on Tuesday evenings. And I'm also leading a 12-step group of 12 amazing women on Thursday nights. Each of these opportunities has allowed me to step back, allow him to use me for his purposes, and at the same time, let go of my expectations and need to be valued by others. More and more, each day, I'm experiencing true freedom. Christian author James McDonald has said, when you bump a Christian, you find out what they're full of. I can only tell you, I am full of gratitude for the journey I have been on. To anyone who is considering celebrate recovery as a means to find hope and healing in your life, I would say, you are not alone. Calm as you are, but you need to know, no perfect people are allowed. This is a journey for all of us who struggle and get stuck by our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Oh, that's all of us. Psalm 141 says, Praise be to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God, my fortress, my stronghold, and my deliverer. Thank you for letting me share my journey with you. I think you can see, similar to my opening story about the puzzle pieces scattered on the floor, in spite of Linda's ability or talent or effort, her life had become unexpectedly fragmented. And as a result, she found herself stuck. See, it wasn't drugs or alcohol that brought Linda to celebrate recovery, but she needed loving community to help her process the loss of her daughter. And just as Linda discovered, people all over the world are finding that Celebrate Recovery is truly a safe place to work on all kinds of hurts, habits, and hang-ups. In fact, in its 25-year history, millions of lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ through Celebrate Recovery. 
as it now is in 30,000 churches internationally, and its materials have been translated into 19 languages. Cover Celebrate Recovery is not the only program offering wholeness and healing at Overlake, but it is part of a larger community ministries network that is helping connect and care for others. And I want to tell you what a privilege it is to be part of a church that recognizes the value of this and is constantly challenging itself to reach out to the broken, abused, and marginalized. Listen to some of what's available. The Landing, which is a program of Celebrate Recovery that helps teens work through their hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Divorce Recovery and Divorce Care for those who are going through the pain and issues of divorce. Grief Share for those who have experienced the loss of a loved one. Prodigals, another program in addition to CR that is helping men who are struggling with sexual integrity issues. Abigails, a special group of women who are encouraging and supporting women who are struggling with domestic violence issues. Healing the Wounded Heart for women who have experienced sexual abuse. Sozo, a deliverance ministry for those needing concentrated prayer regarding inner, uh, issues of inner healing. And Safe Parking, which is a ministry that we have here at Overlake that is reaching out to the homeless in our community. And more recently, with the development of our mental health initiative, we now have Living Grace and Family Grace support groups to help individuals and families who are struggling with mental health issues of all kinds. This initiative is so powerful as up to now, those who are battling with or dealing with mental health issues have been stigmatized and labeled largely because it's much easier to minimize problems we're afraid of or don't understand or don't have quick solutions for. We need to recognize that mental health issues are far more common than any of us could realize. Statistics bear out that one in five Americans suffers from a significant mental health issue every year. So you see, the people who are struggling with mental health issues are not everyone else, but it's you and me and the person sitting next to you today. And although mental health issues are complex, they're not insurmountable. With proper treatment and compassionate support and encouragement, they can be dealt with. In fact, today, I would encourage you to stop by the Living Grace table, which is directly across from the Caring Ministry and Celebrate Recovery desk, to learn more about how Living Grace is reaching out to people who are struggling with mental health issues. And also, you can take a brief action step today by offering a word of encouragement, by writing a brief note to someone or a family who's struggling with a mental health issue. So if the far, first part of my message today is that struggling with hurts, habits, and hang-ups is not the exception, but it's the rule, then the norm, and the norm, then the second part is how do we find victory amidst our struggles? And I know the simple Sunday school answer is Jesus, but at a practical level, what does that look like in our day-to-day -day lives? You see, I'm of the school of thought that believes what it says in Romans 1.16 when it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Not just over eternal judgment, but freedom over those things would easily ensnare us so that we're not able to experience the abundant life 
that Jesus spoke of. When Celebrate Recovery was founded 25 years ago by John Baker, it started with a 13-page letter from Baker to Pastor Rick Warren at Saddleback Church in Southern California. At that time, John collaborated with Rick, and he was used the Beatitudes, which interestingly we've studied through this last summer, and he developed, uh, he developed an acrostic recovery for, with this purpose in mind. I know there are some of you that would minimize the 12 steps because they acknowledge a higher power. But the 12 steps were originally written as a Christian discipleship program out of the Oxford group. And then Bill W. took those 12 steps, and as AA became more popular, they redefined the one and only true higher power, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other true higher power. But they redefined it, and as a result, it became known as the higher power. But those 12 steps in their original form are a discipleship program that God teaches every believer as they journey in their discipleship to Christian maturity. Let's take a look at the acrostic for recovery. And we're going to go a little bit rapid, so you don't want to miss any of it. The first letter in our, in our acrostic is the letter R. Realize I'm not God. I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and my life is unmanageable. Happier are those who know they are spiritually poor. Matthew 5.3. In the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the problem begin. The serpent tempts Eve, and he says, Eve, God doesn't want you to eat this fruit that's in the middle of the garden, because he knows in the day you eat of it, you will be like God. God. And there's the problem. We all have this desire to be in charge of everything and everyone around us. But the problem is, and it doesn't take long to realize this, we really are not in charge of anything. The whole world is out of control. Friends, God's God, and we're not. And in spite of our good intentions, in our selfish nature, we all have the tendency to do the wrong thing. Listen to what it says in Galatians 5.17. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of our sinful nature, or sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. The next letter is the letter E, which stands for earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. When we take this step, we're acknowledging that the solution we need is outside of ourselves. But here's the good news when you place your faith in God. Not only do we have a God who can, but we have a God who cares. It tells us in Romans 5, 6 through 8, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Ephesians 3.20 tells us, listen to this, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power 
that works within us. You see, the core message of the gospel is that God wants to do something for us, in us, and through us we just cannot do for ourselves. That's amazing. The C in recovery, our recovery acrostic is this. Consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. Happier than meat, Matthew 5, 5. This means that we're going to get off the throne and put God in his rightful place as the Lord of our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but this principle is something I've struggled with significantly during the course of my Christian walk. Because I'm one of those boneheads that likes to question God's standards, and I've lived my life accepting the myth that, okay, God, I'll be willing to obey once you show me to my satisfaction why this is good. That's a bit like telling your, or like your kid's not trusting you when you tell them not to play in traffic, isn't it? But you see, this type of reasoning is a fallacy because whether I understand whether something is true or not doesn't make it any more or less true. For example, does everyone here, do, do we have any like um, nuclear physicists here or quantum physicists here? We didn't in the last service. That's a good sign because you know, this, this, this principle doesn't always work well with them. But for example, does everyone here, because they understand it, does everyone here understand Einstein's formula of relativity, E equals mc squared, energy equals the mass times the speed of light squared? Well, that's the basis for the development of the quantum light theory. And both of those theories were used in developing an atom bomb, right? So whether you understand it or not, if an atom bomb blew up in our parking lot right now, you would know for a fact that E does equal mc squared. You see, it tells in Isaiah 55, 8, 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The O in our acrostic is openly confess and examine myself to God and to someone I trust. Happier the pure in heart, Matthew 5, 8. As we've been discussing, it's not easy being honest with ourselves, let alone anyone else. Sadly, it's simply fear and pride that keeps us from being able to take this step. But once we've overcome that fear, and once we've taken that step, we can find freedom because we don't have to waste the energy in our life to constantly hide. And that's what's so beautiful here about Overlay Christian Church, is we're developing a community of people here where we can be honest about our struggles, and we can be on journey together. Listen to what it says in 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So once we've done that, once we've taken that, that open, honest examination, we're ready to take the next step, which is V. Voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. Happier are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires, Matthew 5, 6. Friends, it's important to realize that recovery is something that needs to be done voluntarily by individuals themselves. Many times I'll have people come or call me on the phone or they'll come into contact with me and say, 
I, my husband or my wife has this problem. My boyfriend or my girlfriend has this problem. My son or my daughter has this problem. My friend has this problem. Could you give them a call? And I say, no, give them my number and invite them to give me a call. Because recovery needs to be done voluntarily by the individuals themselves. No one can force recovery for another person. No one can manipulate somebody to, to entering into recovery. This is hard because the problem is we have people in our lives that we love. And it's hard watching them make grueling choices that are destructive over and over again. But everyone needs to take that step of humility and honesty by stepping forward and engaging in the process themselves. Does that make sense? The second E in our acrostic in recovery stands for evaluate all my relationships. Offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me and make amends for harm I've done to others, except when to do so would harm them or others. Happier the merciful, happier the peacemakers. Matthew 5, 7, and 9. As I said earlier, we all have tremendous capacity to hurt others and be hurt. And certainly the Bible would instruct us and we understand that we need to seek forgiveness from those that we've harmed. And we need to be quick to forgive those who have harmed us. But many times the how and who of how to forgive and who to forgive is not that easy to identify. A couple of weeks ago, I uh, was traveling back from Southern California from the Celebrate Recovery uh, Western West Coast Summit. I'm on the national team there and the West Coast director and uh, it's a week. It's just a, it's a, uh, a week where we're just working 16 hours a day. It's just, it's awesome. But at the end of that week, I, I, I was exhausted and I was ready to come home. I had been gone a week and simply looking to find a seat, uh, a nice quiet seat where I could just, you know, kind of catch a little sleep on the way home. And it was like, you know, when you're in ministry, it's kind of like you kind of have this idea that, okay, I, I, there, there's not a time where you're off, right? Because God has other plans, okay? So it's like I had a sign on my back, hey, pastor will listen to you wherever I went. I left the hotel at breakfast. Somebody, you know, stopped me. I got to the, the so I, I'm, I'm sitting down and I'm entering the plane and I notice this aisle seat in the front. And I asked the woman if the seat was available and she said, sure, but her little boy would be sitting there as well. And I said, you know, okay, that's great. And so when the boy arrived, I noticed that he was quite a bit older. In fact, he was 16 years old. <laughs> and her son sat down, and he retreated in some headphones to watch a movie on, on, on an iPad. Eventually, the woman struck up a conversation with me, and, and she found out. She kind of asked what I did, and I said, I'm a pastor. And it's like, that was an open invitation. <laughs> and... Uh, she told me she, was, she too was a Christian. She was part of a really solid Bible-teaching church and she had, that she'd been attending for 25 years. She knew the word. And she felt compelled at that point to share all kinds of problems with me, and she was looking for solutions. But it kind of broke the ice, and as the ice broke, uh, we got into a conversation, and she mentioned that she had another daughter that died eight years before at the age of eight. And I put the two together that it was her son's fraternal twin. And I started to realize why she was referring to him as her little boy. And naturally, my first reaction was one of sadness. I mean, I know as a, 
as a, as a parent that my biggest fear is losing my child. And immediately I was just empathizing with her because that's every parent's worst nightmare. And I asked her, I said, if you don't mind me asking, could you, would you like to share what happened? And she told me that her daughter woke up one Friday morning and she said, Mommy, I'm sick. I, I, I want to go to the doctor. And she had symptoms of what appeared to be a flu. And, and so she said, well, honey, let's see how you feel tomorrow. And well, she treated it, you know, very rationally as, as a flu. And she got up Saturday and she said, Mommy, I'm really sick. I want to go to the doctor. And so she called the doctor and she relayed the symptoms to the doctor. And the doctor said, yeah, there's a flu going around. You know, just continue to give, you know, keep her hydrated, keep her comfortable, et cetera, et cetera. And, and she said, well, we, they set up an appointment for Monday at 1.30. Sunday, she was still sick. She was not getting any better. And then Monday morning, her son also came down and commented, Mom, you know, sis is really, really sick, and, you know, we need to get her to the doctor. And then her daughter, you know, followed behind. It was about 10.30 in the morning. She got a glass of water. And she said, Mommy, yeah, she said, I'm really, really sick. She said, yeah, well, we're going to be going to the doctors in just a few hours, so just, you know, let's, why don't you go in and rest until it's time to go. She went into the, her daughter's bedroom an hour later and her daughter had died. What a horrible thing. I was just filled with tears listening to her and, and both of us and, and, you know, we're just there. And um, I looked at her and it became very clear what the problem was. And I looked at her and I said, you haven't forgiven yourself for your daughter's death, have you? And she said, every day, I think of her, I try to do something to remember, and I blame myself every day. She was a parent that made a rational decision. It was a judgment call. She did her very best, but that judgment just turned out to be the wrong thing. And she was beating herself up. This woman was a lifelong believer. She knew the Bible well. She was part of this Bible church, as I said, and and she had been through counseling. She had numerous friends just tell her that, you know, hey, this wasn't your fault. But she was completely stuck in feelings of guilt and self-condemnation for something that was just a reasonable act of judgment. She openly confessed in spite of knowing God and all the counseling. She just didn't know how to get the pieces of her life back together. And then it came to me this principle. I said, have you ever thought or have you ever asked, thought of asking your daughter for forgiveness by writing her a letter? Sharing your hopes and dreams for her, telling her how you believed you failed her and just asking her for forgiveness. I mean, I know you know she's forgiving you. She's in heaven. She's with Jesus. But have you ever thought you need to do this for you? And as I did, it was like this beam of light came across her face and she lit up and she had an epiphany and a moment because she realized that she no longer had to be a prisoner to the cage she had created for herself. She said, you know, I haven't done that. And you could tell she couldn't wait to put pen to paper to write that letter. Friends, she finally saw an answer on how to get the pieces of her world back together. Where our failures and the failures of others initiate pain, forgiveness is the antidote. 
And we would be wise to always remember that. Let's continue to finish up our acrostic. The second R in our acrostic is for reserve a daily time with God for self-examination, Bible reading, and prayer in order to know God and his will for my life and to gain the power to follow his will. Friends, it's our relationship and our relational connection with Jesus that helps us to realize our purpose and keeps us on track. It tells us in Ephesians that we were chosen in him before the foundations of the earth, and we were chosen for good works, which he preordained before the beginning of time. In other words, everybody here has a unique design and purpose. Question, what is it? How do you figure it out? You enter into intimate relationship with Jesus, and as you continue to communicate with Jesus, and you continue to understand his word, and you continue to apply it to your lives, you start to realize the way you are designed. You can't help yourself. And it, the, the misconception is that we believe that if we just do all the right stuff, that makes us Christians. And it's not true. It's not about doing all the right stuff. It's about who is Jesus in your life. The Bible tells the Pharisees believed they were doing all the right stuff because they were the keepers of the law. But Jesus tells them in John 5.39, you search the scriptures and you believe in them, you have eternal life. But it's the scriptures that point the way to me. Friends, it's that intimate relationship that helps define us and helps us bring that fragmentation back into wholeness. Finally, the last letter in our acrostic is the letter Y. Yield myself to God to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and by my words. Happier are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. People may believe what you say, but they will understand who you are by how you live out your life. What do you believe or what you believe is going to be reflected in how you live out your life? If you're a person that hides from your hurts, habits, and the hang-ups, and you can't be real? What are you telling a world that's looking for freedom? God is not a safe person, and the church is not a safe person to communicate that with. And so I hide. But the reality is you can't give someone something you don't possess. So if you don't understand God's grace and the freedom in dynamic transformational relationship with Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, how can we share that with everyone else around us? And your lives are billboards. Every single person in this room, if you're a Christian, your life is a billboard. Question is, what do people see when they look at your billboard? Do they see freedom and an invitation to hope? Or do they see fear? Because if you were to be honest with them about who you really are, you wouldn't be accepted. The choice is up to you. In closing, hopefully you've been challenged to admit that you too are a struggler in this world. That you struggle with stuff as you travel daily in your journey through life. Stuff can certainly look different for all of us. But the common factor is that when we get stuck, it hinders us from experiencing God's best in our lives. Perhaps today you realize you've been putting off 
getting honest with your stuff and you're feeling prompted to take that first step toward wholeness by accepting Jesus Christ for your, uh, for, into your life. Or perhaps you know you need deeper connection by connecting to one of the support groups or ministries I spoke of earlier. Or perhaps you know you need to enter into community by joining a life group. Or maybe you'll even take a risk and come to Celebrate Recovery on Tuesday night. Whatever step you take, you don't have to settle for second best for your life or in your relationship with God, but you can reach for all he wants to do in and through you. Today, I want to challenge us all to remember that when we see someone struggling with some kind of a hurt, habit, or hang-up that maybe is not familiar to us, let's not look at each other as those people, but let's remember we're all those people. You see, the hope of the gospel is not in looking a certain way, but it's by humbly acknowledging our need for God and embracing him in that process of dynamic transformation to do something for us, in us, and through us we cannot do for ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for everyone in this room today. God, you're doing an amazing work in your church. And you're helping us to realize that the call to Jesus Christ is a call to freedom. It's not one to re-enter into bondage by not being able to be honest about the fact we're strugglers. God, may we be a people that would embrace that concept in our lives. May it reflect in us and through us in a way that it would be contagious to a world that is desperately seeking freedom. God, we thank you that you desire to have that relationship with us and that you desire to do something for us, in us, and through us. We cannot do for ourselves. God, I pray that you would encourage people to take the steps necessary in their journey, God, to grow deeper with you. We thank you for each other today, and we thank you for the work that you're doing in your son's precious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. amen.